This episode of In Good Company is sponsored by Plum, a money management app and one-stop destination for managing your personal finances. Looking after your finances doesn't need to be complicated. And with Plum, it's easier than ever to take control of your money situation, no matter what your situation is. Using automated tools, Plum allows you to manage your money with minimal effort, whether that's saving money, opening a pension, or comparing and switching your energy bill and insurance providers. Plum actually adapts to your spending, automatically calculating how much you can afford to set aside at any given moment, so you'll never end up being caught short. If you've got a busy lifestyle, and really, don't we all, Plum also allows you to set some simple rules that do the saving for you, like its roundups feature, which rounds up all of your purchases to the nearest pound and puts those extra pennies straight into a savings pot meaning you'll be adding to your savings without even having to think about it. Download the Plum app for free now and try it out for yourself. Thank you very much to Plum. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Atagi Ragba in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. To coincide with the publication of my new book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is out now, every episode in this eight-part season is me speaking to various women about their relationships with and experiences of money and having those honest conversations that I think we're all dying to have but often don't get to. If you don't know much about my book, We Need to Talk About Money, here's a little overview. It's a part memoir, part cultural commentary, exploring my experiences with money over the years and what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money and our position in society, particularly as that relates to women. So it's a mixture of the personal, stories from my childhood, adolescence, my professional life, but it also touches on a lot of bigger issues, from class and privilege to feminism and race, beauty standards, toxic workplaces, how money can affect friendships, and above all, how people's experiences of those things might differ and impact their lives. You can buy it now in hardback, ebook and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com, and I've linked to all those retailers in the show notes. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Mona Chalabi, a data journalist, producer and presenter who lives in New York and whose work has appeared in publications ranging from The New Yorker to The Guardian, and has also written for radio and TV networks including NPR, Gimlet, Netflix, the BBC. The list truly does go on when it comes to Mona, so I won't even attempt to list them all. Suffice to say that Mona is one half of the team that created an Emmy-nominated video series called Vagina Dispatches. And she's also an illustrator, a brilliant one, And much of her work in that field focuses on bringing data to life by visualising important information around all sorts of political and social issues, from poverty and wealth to women's health issues and racial inequities. Do be sure to check out her Instagram, which I've linked to in the episode's show notes. This episode felt super personal for me because Mona and I have such similar money attitudes and, dare I say, neuroses. Mona's the person who first introduced me to the concept of money dysmorphia. That is, a dissonance between your feelings about your financial circumstances and the reality. So we spoke about that at length, as well as how your upbringing and childhood experiences affect your relationship to money, particularly if, as Mona and I both are, you're from an immigrant background. 
We also talked about toxic workplaces and racism at work and deciding whether or not to speak up publicly about that sort of thing, as well as how freelancing has changed Mona's relationship to money and what her financial situation is now. Really hope you enjoy this episode. So here's Mona. Welcome back to the podcast, Mona. You are my first repeat guest and I'm very excited to speak to you today. Thanks, Otega. I'm excited to be here. I want to jump straight into things and talk about an article that you wrote for The Guardian back in 2019 about money dysmorphia, which is a phrase or concept I'd never heard before, but it so perfectly summarised my own relationship with money that I actually wrote about it in my book. I felt like you were writing about me. It actually felt quite surreal. Like it felt a bit creepy, (laughs) like like you'd gone into my head (laughs) and written how I felt. I was really, really shocked. And I'm going to read a little section Mm. from it for listeners, if you don't mind, just to set the scene. I definitely don't mind because I don't remember it very well. (laughs) Okay, well, let me me refresh your memory. So you wrote, I feel like I do not have money, even though I do. I know objectively that I can go out to lunch, order a $17 burger and have plenty of money left over. But still, I'll sit at the table stewing with anxiety over what I might need that money for someday. My warped reality comes from fears about the future, one where I might be back in a dingy bedsit, unable to pay bills, or even worse, relying on a man. I live in worst-case scenario mode to protect myself from the financial perils of naivety. I worry that if I actually let myself accept that I have money now, it will be even more of a shock if poverty does come. And you then go on to say, I have prioritised the accumulation of money over the comfort I would get from spending it, and that... My unwillingness to spend a little more on myself is bad for me. So let's just kind of unpick all of that. And as I said, I really, really related to that when you put it out. A lot of people did. When I was doing prep for this interview, mm. there's like Reddit threads about it. I don't know. If you really? Yeah. No way. And like generally I would say you do not want to be on Reddit, but there's <laughs> like a Reddit thread wow. with people being like, this is me. Yeah. I received a lot of emails and I feel like generally... There's a lot of pieces you put out in the world where like you just wouldn't ever hear anything back. And for someone to take the time to like find your email address and message you about it generally is an indication that something resonated. And weirdly, a long time after it was published, I still get emails and they basically don't say anything other than I related to this. That's all they say. So were you surprised to find Mm. that so many people related to it? Yes. And I think I was also surprised that people were willing to say that they related to it because I think that I thought I was coming up with this expression, but I think it might have actually already existed. And I think there was already work on it. I think. I'm not sure now, but I remember looking up afterwards and seeing there were other references to this idea of some kind of dissonance between your reality and your perception about your financial circumstance. I think the reason why I say I'm surprised about people being willing to own up to it, I guess, is that For me, that very, very real feeling of money dysmorphia, I think can sometimes manifest as something that could look like miserly behaviour, right? Or or even maybe greed. It's like going for the wrong jobs because you're worried. And yeah, I don't feel great about that. So I felt uncomfortable admitting to it. And I assumed other people would too. Mm. But then you say later in the article, and again, I really related to this, is that your miserliness or stinginess, if you can call it that, only applied to yourself yes. and when it came to other people yeah. were very generous which yeah. is me as well like I'm always mm. like people get good presents from me yeah. <laughs> because I just throw money at the situation but I've done some absolutely mad stuff in terms of depriving mm. myself mm. 
of money. Like you gave a couple of examples about spending money on a cheap therapist and a bad dermatologist. In my mid to late 20s, I was making, you know, a decent amount and I was still living at my parents' home at that point. But I'd set myself this budget that was so punitive, so miserly that I actually started going to my overdraft pretty much every month and paying overdraft fees because of that. I know. And when it had happened a few times, I was like, this makes no sense because you actually have more money and you're now actually costing yourself money because you're being so tight-fisted with yourself. And so I raised my budget a little bit. But that, for me, was such a turning point. Mm. And the one thing I don't like to do is waste money. So that's why I was like, okay, now you need to change it. But I'm curious as to how you came to the realisation that this was your money mindset and got to the point where you could write this article. I think a big part of it was conversations with my sister, you know, because one of the things that's quite weird is that I think some of my mindset about money comes from my circumstances growing up, right? I felt like there were times when our financial situation was a bit scary. But what's really, really fascinating is that my sister was raised in the same house as me, doesn't see that at all. She didn't walk away with the same set of feelings about money at all. Are you older or younger? I'm younger, which is also really, really weird. Like everyone who meets us just assumes I'm like five years older than her and she's two years older than me. I was just like the constantly raw, anxious, younger child. The reason I asked that, because this this is so mad. And Mona, I feel like we've talked before about the fact that we're basically the same person. But (laughs) my sister read an article I wrote for very recently about having a similar mindset to Mm. you and about just being really panicky and anxious in my 20s. And she was like, I don't get it. And we, yeah. like, you know, I came from a background where money was tight and often a source of stress in my family growing up. Mm. So we had exposure to the same things. But she was like, yeah, she was like, I think you have always been more anxious about money yeah. than I have. And yeah. I'm also younger than her. And so I'm trying to figure out whether there is something about being the younger sister that mm. means that you are more sensitive to this sort of thing. Because, yeah, she saved and she's done well for herself. But I was so painfully tight with myself in a way that made me miserable and that doesn't apply to her so Mm. I'm just trying to figure out whether there's like a birth order thing there I I don't Mm. know I'm so fascinated by birth order but I also think it's our personality types I don't think it's about birth order although maybe you feel more vulnerable to those economic shocks when you're like the youngest I have no idea I have no idea but yeah my sister's mentality is totally different to mine like listen to something that my sister said to me the other day she asked me about like some jewellery that I had on my hands and I was saying I just love jewellery and so does she and she said that she can't wear it anymore because she feels like she is a rich woman and for rich people to wear jewellery is like so fucking ostentatious about their wealth and she probably earns about an eighth of what I do she's on an income that I would consider quite a difficult income and she feels like she's absolutely filthy rich and so she reminds me all the time you are rich and that makes me so uncomfortable because that's not how I identify at all and she's like you have a duty and a responsibility to recognize that you are rich otherwise you are being so disrespectful to people who are in a weaker economic position than you. But what does rich mean? I think that's pretty subjective it is but also she's always just kind of the voice of reason in my life she's got quite a big role in my life and I just think 
you can like pontificate about and say like what does it mean but at the end of the day I kind of know deep down that I am actually fine like I know that this is a psychological dissonance with my reality I know that if for example I take it like even if I got an I'm doing my US taxes at the moment and the bill is so shockingly high and I'm freaking (laughs) out but also I can afford to pay this shockingly high bill and I know it's really really hard because I'm sure listeners are just like, what the fuck is shockingly high? Quantify this so that I can position myself in relation to it. So what can I say without making myself too vulnerable? If I were to get an unexpected bill for $20,000, I can afford to pay that. That is fucking huge. That is someone who is filthy rich. She's right. And it's partly because of my sister's work. So my sister does a lot of work with basically marginalised communities. And one of her jobs is to allocate funding to families that are in need. Literally, she's like an admin person who like puts the money in people's bank accounts. And she transfers £20 per week to families who are desperately... And literally, they are waiting on that £20. So, of course, she's right. Like, I am. I'm fucking rich. Mm. It's really refreshing to hear you say that because I do think there is a tendency, especially with women, to downplay their economic situation, especially with British people as well. I don't know, is that a mindset that you've picked up in America? So it's really interesting. I'm back in the UK for a little bit at the moment. I've been back for a couple of months, which is its own kind of painful and difficult adjustment. And basically, I am staying in a really, really nice place. And it's the nicest place I've ever, ever stayed in. It's been such a fucking change. Just so emotional, like cried a lot when I first came here. It's the first time that I've been in a space like this. And to see the way that men have reacted to me has been so shocking. And it's really interesting. I was talking to an American friend that moved here from America. And she said she thinks that the UK is way more sexist than the US. So to give you some examples of things that have been said to me, the guy who came to install a washing machine said, this place is really nice. What does your husband do? Um, I went to (laughs) and the just the really really sad thing I take up I said he works in finance because I don't want men to know that I live here alone so I have created this whole fictional world of a rich husband when all I dreamed about when I was younger was being able to turn around and say I can support myself and actually I've had that robbed of me because I felt so uncomfortable with some of the men that have been in my space I tried really, really hard to find a painter this painter came over and basically let me know like after a week that he was sexually attracted to me while we were alone in the house I was horrified it's just awful I went to go and buy a light fitting and I was like asking the guy about like different light fittings and he was like you know what maybe if you come back with your husband you'll be able to up the budget a little bit because he'll see what's available and I was just like no no my budget my money it's just shocking I've been shocked by it and I really didn't think that I could still be shocked by the extent of sexism but some cute surprises always in life. (laughs) Do you feel embarrassed by? So embarrassed. Yeah. So embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I feel really, really strange. Like it's this incredible, incredible home and I don't ever want to have friends so far. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Because now I feel so ashamed. But you've worked for this money. I know, I know. But then Otega, like, there are also people who have, like, worked so fucking hard that still are nowhere near this. Like, it's not about effort and it's not about exertion. It's also about, like, all of this other stuff. And when I say other stuff, I mean, like, systemic inequality. Yeah. I get that. When I bought my flat, I guess it was about six months ago. Well, congratulations. See, I want to scream congratulations. Yeah, yeah. It's a big deal. And I've, like, made my peace with it now Mm. and feel very comfortable 
well, mostly comfortable with it. There are still one or two situations where I don't mention it and I try and kind of dodge around it or pretend, which is so like gross in itself, but kind of just allow people to assume that I'm renting it. But for the most part, when I bought it, I was initially quite embarrassed to share it on social media or on Instagram because, yeah. especially because I bought it like in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm a freelance fucking writer. Like, this isn't really how we're supposed to live. Well, it's not really something that was, I think, just naturally going to happen. And I had to kind of work through that a little bit, but also remind myself that it's something that I had wanted for so long. So I wasn't going to downplay it. It's so hard, right? Because on the one hand, I feel like, and I'm sure you, well, I shouldn't be sure that you're going to relate to this, but maybe we'll relate to this, that do you remember like, and I, this still comes up all the time, being around people who kind of profess to be broke or whatever, and you could just sniff it out. You're just like, fuck up. Like, you so clearly have an abundance of wealth. This was particularly the case when I was younger, like people who would just obfuscate that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to do that in the same way and yes. pretend that I'm in a different set of financial circumstances than the reality. However, A, I think that to post about the place I'm living right now, it feels like exactly like you said, so many people are suffering right now. So that feels gross. It also feels like it's weird if I promote this as somehow aspirational. Like, I don't think many people who are freelance writers like us will get to this point. It's the awful truth, right? And so that's not really realistic to depict. And then I also think it just makes you super vulnerable. Like, I'm also scared that if I show this, people will want to pay me less, right? Or they're like, oh, I don't necessarily need to give her the job because she's doing okay. Also, I feel the opposite. I'm like, if people know that I've got a mortgage and know that I have expensive Mm. taste, they're going to be like, there's no way we're lowballing her because (laughs) (laughs) she likes nice things too much. (laughs) I don't know, but that's like, I don't know, being a bit flippant there, but... The thing that you said about people obfuscating their wealth, which again is something that I write about at length in my book, because I went to a private school on a scholarship, but went to a private school and then I went to Oxford. So I ended up meeting a lot of people who come from insane amounts of family wealth, like things like people whose families are just like on the Sunday Times rich list at the top of it. I remember finding this out about someone I went to uni with and it just blew my mind I swear you told me a story about a uni friend where you went to their house and they had deer was it you they had deer in their garden like that was their level of wealth deer I mean that specific story doesn't apply to me but I've got like parallels essentially it's like an estate but something that irritated me is that in our early 20s especially Mm. a lot of people you know you all graduate and maybe you're all renting and you're renting yeah, a slightly shitty yeah. flat and there's all these especially when I graduated all these screaming headlines about the housing crisis and yeah. how my generation was never going to be able to afford to buy and I really felt that mm-hmm. because it wasn't on the cards for me to be able to buy my own place and I, I really up until I was about 28 29 did not think that, that was something that was going to happen for me and then it just kind of changed quite suddenly but what pissed me off was people kind of joining in with this stuff because yeah. sometimes I was I had like a good advertising job so I'd maybe buy drinks or like buy dinner and then they turn around like sort of in our mid-20s and buy flats like often buy flats outright and all with parental help and I was like you lied to me yeah I felt deceived but not only you lied to me that lying has real repercussions when you're the person that's getting the drinks like that does feel like a slap in the face you didn't acknowledge the discrepancy in our financial circumstances and that is a difference in power that should translate to a difference in actions like 
it's especially so... with race coming into it as well because exactly. these people were all white and yeah. I think to an extent I'm kicking myself and thinking well I should have thought of that and not been yeah. but also there's this thing in me that never wants to be the person who's holding back from paying a bill like I just find that really embarrassing so I think sometimes I overcompensate and then feel taken advantage of <sighs> You know what else I think is really interesting? Because I relate to that so much, right? And I think that, right, it's always difficult to disentangle how much of it is culture versus how much of it is your specific family. Always the struggle, always the struggle. But I would say that I'm just going to go stick my head out and say it's cultural because I know a shitload of other Arabs that react the exact same way. White people can be really tight. I'm going to say it. Yeah. I don't know if I get cancelled for that. But I'm yeah. always having this conversation with my like Nigerian friends. The things that we would never dream of doing or yeah. asking people for money yeah. for. Yeah. And like white British culture is so tight and so like penny pinching. I don't care if anybody comes for me over that. Like it's very cultural. But just like growing up in a Nigerian household, even if you don't have a lot... You have to be generous with people yes. when they come over. You have to pay yeah. the bill. You have yeah, to, be, yeah. you know, you're fighting over who pays the bill, even oh if you God. secretly don't have it like that. And it's not about yeah. posturing. It's about politeness and mm-hmm. culture and, and hospitality. Respect. respect. And respect. Oh my God, I just could not agree more. I don't even know where to start with like distance and click. I have a thousand stories that I want to tell of like how, you know, we went to go and visit family in Iraq and like they cooked a meal for us. And my mum was just like, you do know, like they're eating meat because we're here and they can't really afford to cook meat. And it's crazy because they also know that we have so much more money than them. But like, it doesn't matter. It's like, we are going to do our absolute best because you are here and you're in our homes and offering to give us their beds and fucking sleeping on the floor. Like, it's actually really uncomfortable and difficult to navigate that, like how many times you have to say no before someone will hear you. But I also think something that's really interesting, that's the flip side of that, that I've also kind of disentangled a little bit with my sister is I think... And this is also, I would say, Muslim as well as Arab, a deep, deep fear of debt, right? Which I also think is probably a non-white person thing as well, Mm -hmm. just more generally. But like, it's specifically a really Islamic value as well that like debt is horrific, which obviously is a privileged position, right? Some people have to get themselves into debt, but that manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. So for example, I remember one Christmas, right? Our Indian neighbours across the street came and knocked on the door and brought over like a box of roses And my parents freaked out because they weren't expecting a gift. And they were so horrified that they had received a gift without giving one. So I remember they were like scrambling around the house being like, oh, my God, oh, my God, my God. And I think they found like a set of drinking glasses that were like quite nice. So they like had us wrap them up and like sent a child over the street to go and give it back. And then the Indian neighbors were like, what the fuck? There's like a set of glasses in response to a box of roses and came back. (laughs) what the fuck did they come back with like a vase or something and just watching my parents then they melted down and were like trying to get like literally four gifts were sent that day right because my parents then had to reciprocate and when I was talking about it with my sister she said something I thought was really interesting she was like that fear of owing someone something comes actually from a place of distrust of other people a little bit, right? You never want to feel indebted to someone because you're scared of how they might hold it over you. And I relate to that so much. Like part of the desire to always be the person putting my hand in my pocket is I never want you to be able to turn around and say, I got drinks for her and she didn't do this thing for me. I completely agree. It's that I got drinks for her and she didn't do this for me. But also I live in fear of a debt being called in when I can't afford it. Yeah. So if I owe someone money, maybe I've I don't know if they've covered me for dinner or something mm-hmm. like that, or maybe it's like they've bought flights and we're traveling together. They buy the flights and I'm supposed to pay them back. I will hassle them to pay them that yeah. money back because yeah, yeah. 
my worst fear is for them to call it up in a year or two, which, yeah. you know, they probably wouldn't do. And for me to be like, oh, I actually don't have it now. So I'm like, whilst I have the money, mm. I want to pay you back straight away. And I feel that same way. Like I did my taxes at the start of this year and I was really annoyed. I mean, I now have a different accountant, but the accountant I was using then fucked it up slightly and I paid what I thought was due. And then a couple of weeks later, they wrote to me and were like, oh, sorry, we actually forgot to factor in your student loan. And it was a couple of grand, which I had, yeah. which I'm very lucky to be able to have that. That messed up my cash flow for the next month mm-hmm. or two because I hadn't factored in spending a couple of grand. You know, I'm also trying to do up my place. So like all of my money was allocated for. And that was my worst nightmare come to fruition yeah. Yeah. of thinking you've cleared your debts and then finding out that you haven't. And part of the reason I switched that accountant is because they made so many little mistakes like that. I was like, I don't want, I even wrote to them, I was like, I don't want a letter from HMRC in three years' time saying, by the way, you actually owe us X amount. And I was like, I cannot work with you on that basis. So yeah, it's interesting. But the other fear of debt, I only got a credit card when I was 27 because I was so worried about credit and I only did that to build my credit rating. So like, I use it quite a lot but I pay it off every month so I just use it as like my debit card essentially so I'll go to the shops I'll use it as my oyster card but I pay it off every month it's exactly the same for me exactly the same I think I did it at 29 yeah right and people say things like oh okay you're doing up your place you can put it on credit or buy xyz on credit I'm like no I would rather wait and save up even if it means I'm living without that much furniture at the moment or whatever I'm like I do not want to spend 10 grand up front and be 10 grand in debt and be paying it back monthly. I'd rather wait and save up 10 grand or however much I need. I still want to acknowledge though that that position that we hold is still a relatively privileged one because there are people who literally could not go on holiday unless they could put it on credit, you know, who literally could not buy a couch unless they could buy it on credit. And so it's also true that being able to avoid debt is in itself a privilege. Mm, definitely. I definitely understand that. I want to change tack a little bit and talk about work as it relates to money. I mean, first of all, I want to talk about something and we can go into as much or as little depth as you want to about this. But you tweeted, Uh (laughs) whenever someone brings up my Twitter, I'm like, what? You tweeted back in June of last year when a lot of people of colour were speaking up about racism and mistreatment that they'd endured in the workplace. You tweeted about a toxic work environment you'd worked in. We don't need to name names. But I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that experience, what it was like and how it affected you. I mean, I'm happy to name names. It was when I was working at 5.38. So I guess I'll say that the reason why it feels relevant in June is I feel like so many of us, right, I've spoken to Asian friends who particularly after like the latest spate of anti-Asian attacks, like black friends after this past summer have felt like this undoing of gaslighting in recent years or like a processing of past gaslighting by all of a sudden the people around you acknowledging stuff and that has been really really difficult so this toxic work environment happened honestly like quite a few years ago now I think it was about seven years ago I first moved to America to work for this company 538 now a single person in America you know left my life behind packed up my stuff and went there And it was an awful, awful environment because there were relatively few explicit examples of racism, even though you know that you're the only person of colour in the room and you know you're the only person that's being treated like that. It's still so hard to continually believe in yourself 
And so this summer to watch so many people coming forward and narrate experiences that were so clearly consistent with yours about what it's like to be a person of colour in an all-white working environment, it wasn't just joyous. It was like also really fucking painful and sad, you know? It's really mixed when you hear other people tell these stories and it's happened a lot. I mean, it happened with me after I left Vice where I left that place thinking that I'd failed and I thought a lot of the mm. things that had gone wrong there were to do with me and then there was a sort of big New York Times expose about it like a couple of years down the line and it was both galvanising to be able to point to it and say oh I'm not alone in this but also really depressing at how similar my experiences yeah. were. It's not a sort of unadulterated joy or happiness it's very yeah. bittersweet and also yeah. bittersweet in that you think, had I known this, had I had the language to address it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then could things have been different? Because I also had an experience, you know, advice. I mean, obviously, race is always an issue, but there I, I'd felt very obviously that my gender was holding me back. Mm. At a previous company I worked at, an ad agency, I realised now that the last couple of months I spent there, I was subject to a lot of racism. It made me feel very uncomfortable, but I wouldn't have been able to call it racism even back then, even though I knew the behaviour was inappropriate or not cool. This was 2014, so I don't think the conversations that we're having now about microaggressions, it's not a word that I had in my vocabulary back then. I'm curious as to what considerations you weighed up in deciding to speak up about that when you did. The editor-in-chief of that particular media brand is still a really fucking powerful dude. If you want to just get into, like, raw number stuff, I have 90,000 followers. I think he has 3.6 million. If he wants to tweet an accusation against me, I'm fucked. Do you know what I mean? Like, his word against mine, in a world that is still predominantly white, in a media landscape that is still overwhelmingly white, is difficult. And I know as well how cutthroat he is it's really interesting right I've received private emails from white colleagues at that time saying I'm really sorry I saw what was happening and I should have spoken up right how does that make you feel really fucking angry really fucking angry because I feel like this is how it always goes right and I'm also not perfect I have noticed myself being tempted to do it myself right so you'll be in a meeting you will see something fucked up happen right so for example I was literally on a call the other day where someone made, I mean, it's really difficult. It's a comedy writing call, right? But someone made a joke about the Holocaust. And I was just like, no, not funny, not funny, right? And I saw a Jewish person on the call cringe. And I wanted to message them afterwards saying, I'm really sorry. And it's just like, no, I didn't send that message. All I did was say to myself, next time fucking speak in the meeting. Like you don't get to just send the emails and feel like you've been absolved of guilt because you acknowledge that to the person. But privately, the risks of actually legitimately speaking up, which are to tweet about it, fucking tweet and have my back and say, I saw this thing happen and Mona's not crazy. Don't send me a private email. That's cowardice. Yeah, And that's really similar to what I wrote about in Whites, actually. I don't know if you remember this, but last summer when everything was kicking off Mm. and the New York Times published that op-ed by, I think, Senator Tom Cotton, where he essentially called for, you remember that, people lost jobs over that. And he called for, I think, the army to go in and like Mm -hmm. suppress the Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. protesting. And it was so unconscionable. The New York Times, you know, eventually admitted that they should not have published that. They should yeah. not have run that essay. And the person who oversaw it resigned. Let's call it that. Mm. And what really pissed me off, and the reason that that incident made it into my essay, even though I was like, the majority of people reading this will be British and 
might not know or care about this incident so much was the fact that I started seeing a couple of white New York Times journalists that I followed and, and who followed me being just sending really oblique tweets about it. And I know yeah. that the New York Times's employee handbook means that you can't really speak publicly yeah. about this stuff. Yeah. And I was like, but this has crossed the line. They sent really oblique tweets about it. And I responded to one of them being like, uh-huh. as a white staffer at this company, I think you could afford to be a little bit more loquacious yeah, yeah. in your condemnation. Yeah. And then I had this person and another white New York Times staffer jump into my DMs being like, oh, no, 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 this is why we can't say anything. And I was like, I know what's at risk for you. And my point is, you need to be prepared to risk it. The thing that finally kind of sent me over the edge was that people did speak out and condemn it. And you know who those people were? The black staffers at the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. They went first. And then a few hours and a day later, both of these white journalists also went Mm -hmm. forward and condemned it publicly. And that order of events, I will never forget it. It's literally like you jump off the cliff, you see if you die when you jump off and I'll jump off after you. Yeah. And considering the privileged dynamics and the the power dynamics there, it has stayed with me. And it was actually a huge kind of driving force for me writing that essay. And Because after that happened, I texted a black friend of mine being like, I'm not really sure about all this allyship shit. Like I was like, I don't really know if it exists. And that was kind of the genesis of the essay because even when all these conversations were at their peak Mm. and, you know, white people were professing all of these commitments, I was like, when push comes to shove, y'all ain't willing. Allyship inherently can't be a private act. That's not allyship, right? Allyship has to be public. It has to be with the risk of potentially losing something. I think allyship can be private, but I think what you said about the risk of potentially losing something, yeah. for me, is fundamental to it. Yeah. But see, is, if it's private, then, isn't that just friendship or... Do you know what I mean? Is that allyship? Possibly. I think in that specific situation, what was needed was public yeah. allyship. Yeah. But I think there are other situations in which something being done privately mm. might also do the job I think that was because of the specifics of that situation it was very public what was required at that moment in time was a public disavowal of that op-ed and that didn't happen until the black staffers I I literally watched it unfold in real time and it was like Jenna Wortham was one of the first people to come out against it I think Jasmine Hughes those were I think the two first and I could tell that they'd had conversations because Mm. you know everyone kind of tweeted the same line but I was like that's not what should have happened shouldn't have been that way around A quick word from our episode sponsor, Plum. I already mentioned that the Plum app is brilliant for helping you to set and achieve your savings goals. But did you also know that Plum actually helps you to invest your money as well? You can start investing through the Plum app from as little as £1, choosing the type of funds that you'd like to invest in, whether those are tech giants like Apple and Facebook, or clean and green investments and companies selected for their social responsibility. Once you've selected your funds, Plum does all the rest for you. So all you have to do is sit back and let your money work. Download the Plum app for free now and try it out for yourself. Please note, your capital is at risk if you choose to invest. And now, back to the show. I want to bring things back to talking about money. Even though I think what we were just talking about is very much related to money and power and capital and all of that, but... I want to talk more about your current situation now and you being self-employed, freelance. Mm. Well, first of all, when did you go freelance? Why did you go freelance? And how has that affected your relationship with money? 
I went fully freelance maybe three years ago now, and I was terrified. I would say that I was extra terrified because I was in the US. So I knew that my healthcare bill for like the shittiest form of health insurance was $800 a month. And my rent, just for context, this is for like a nice apartment in Brooklyn, but also like not super nice. It's a small one bedroom apartment that was about 600 square foot was $2,200 per month. So your health insurance is a third of your rent, basically, in addition. It was a huge, huge, huge consideration. This is what I would recommend, actually, to a lot of people if they are able to do it this way. I went to my employer at The Guardian and basically said, like, I want to go part-time. I want to work for you two days a week and then do other stuff. And I was just really, really lucky and privileged they said yes. So it meant that, like... I was able to transition to freelance and manage my time in a totally different way, whilst also having the security of knowing that at least a portion of my bills would be covered. And I would also say that I've been slowly building stuff up to that point. Did you have savings? Yes. Yeah, I had loads, loads and loads. I have loads because I've also been privileged enough to be paid quite well in my previous jobs, but literally also because of my miserly behaviour. Like, you know, Mm. I think at this point I've probably been saving for seven years not going on vacation and never buying myself expensive things. The truth is I could have probably afforded a nicer apartment than $2,200 per month, but I wanted to continue to save so that I could make that transition to freelance. Like to just give you one example of the deprivation, just because I guess the general theme of this interview is money dysmorphia. I was saying to someone the other day that I went on holiday to Guadeloupe and I hadn't been on holiday for like years I was just looking for a really cheap place and accidentally booked myself into a couple's a couple's resort so it's just like me and couples and every single dinner was like these tables that were set for two and they'd always come over and be like mademoiselle would you like me to take away the other plate and I was like yes fine fucking take it away anyway but when I arrived I remember so vividly like whatever stayed got in late stayed the night and walked down to the beach the next morning and as I was walking down to the beach <laughs> literally this is so gross but I literally was like oh there's my period and I hadn't had my period for like four years (gasps) yeah (laughs) and I was just like felt like a moment of relaxation and then like yeah little old period came which I think really speaks to how fucked up it is what I was doing yeah yeah shit man okay that has really thrown me but Christ you were putting your body through yeah yeah I mean I think I'm quite bad at abusing my body and I think that again we have to like adjust our language where working myself to the point where my period stopped was almost like a mark of pride. Mm. Very, very wrong. Very wrong. Yeah. No, I feel that. I mean, do you spend now? You were splurging now. I spend so much more than I ever have done, but I still do weird maths, right? So for example, I was looking at a couch the other day. It was a couch that was £2,500. And I'm still doing the maths of like how that would be, what, 125 families receiving those £20 that my sister does? 125 families. That's interesting maths. And I think that comes obviously very much from the nature of your job. I think the maths I would do on that is what jobs I need to do to pay for it, which is how I think about stuff. So I'm like, oh, that's this speaking gig or that's Mm. this and that article, whatever. That's how I think about it. Or actually now I very much equate things into months of mortgage paid. My base costs, mortgage and bills I've worked out is like about 1,400, 1,500 pounds. And so that's the increments I think of things 
how do you make money now? I want to know how you've become rich. Yeah. <laughs> so a big part of it was actually speaking gigs that are really, really well paid. But obviously they've all dried up during the pandemic. I pivoted towards doing more illustration work with some brands, which feels a bit weird journalistically. But, you know, I'm trying to pick brands that feel less gross. The brand thing is a tricky one because I think for most creatives, a degree of commercial work is just a necessity. Like, let me tell you now, <laughs> my journalism is not what's paying the bills. My books do, yeah. but only because I've achieved a degree of success in sales with them. But that might, I'm always very, very conscious of the fact that that might not be the case in the future. I'm not counting on making royalties for my next book. I'm not counting on even getting another book deal. Like I'm very much of the moment and trying to come up with other sources of income. But the brand thing is interesting because I think most journalists, I know, especially when, you, when you're a journalist, it's like you've worked at The Guardian, like you've really been in the places where the ethical considerations and yeah. the division of church and state is very clear. When you're freelance, it's very hard to be completely pure. Yeah. And some people don't do it publicly, but they'll do it privately. So they'll consult. Mm. That's something that I had to wrap my head around. Look, I used to work in advertising, so I've never been like completely brand shy. Yeah. But I do have to like navigate it in terms of what I am and I'm not willing to do. And, and basically just try not to jeopardise my credibility exactly. as a journalist, because that's the thing that's really key to me. And so I turn stuff down that's like good money because I'm like, I don't think that really fits with what yeah. I'm trying to do. But yeah, yeah. speaking gigs, do you have an agent for that? I do, yeah. And they're really, really good. They take 25%, which at first scared me, but now I see it's totally worth it because they've more than tripled the fees that I get because they're willing to have conversations about money that I wasn't. I was yeah. going to ask how you figure out what to charge for things that you negotiate on your own. I've outsourced it now. So I have an agent for speaking. Yeah, I have an agent for illustration stuff. I have an agent for, I was going to say modelling. It feels so cringy, but there has been like some things of like, can we photograph you? So I have an agent for that. Say modelling. <laughs> say it, Mona, you're a model. <laughs> so yeah, I have an agent for everything and it's just so helpful. So, so, so helpful. And I was really, really reluctant. Again, because of this scarcity mindset, right? I don't earn enough to be able to lose... 20% but that's just not true like I actually can afford to do that and it's necessary and they bump it up so that what they're making you is more than 20% more so it works out yeah I think that's something you have to get your head around exactly but it, it has been quite a process to find the right kinds of people that I want to work with so oh same I'm still <laughs> figuring that out it's really hard and I think it's okay to work with someone and be like this is a bad fit and that when it's something that is that personal to your career as an agent it's inevitable that you're gonna same with a lawyer same with an accountant that core team is essential and for example like the first team that I worked with I'm just gonna say it, they were two rich girls right and it was like a hobby for them oh, and I mate. just felt like they didn't fucking work hard enough like I would send them stuff and they wouldn't follow up on it and I was just like nah you don't care as much as as I do and that's a problem I had an agent we only worked together for three months and the final straw was I found out that she lost me a really well-paid speaking gig in the email I wrote to her I said I don't earn enough money yeah. for me to take this in my stride yeah and I almost felt like you don't need this commission yeah, yeah. clearly but I do need that money but for instance my editor like my publisher is very clear on the fact and it's different because editors and publishers they're not negotiating for you on a data basis they're not as controlled but she's very aware of the fact that I'm incredibly motivated about the performance of my books because of financial reasons and she gets that 
and we work together on that. Whereas I don't feel like I could work with someone who doesn't get that. For me, you know, the reason I'm motivated by my books is because, yeah, I'm a writer and I want them to do well, but I'm also like the better this book does, the better I do financially. And so she gets that and we have a really great relationship, not just because of that, but she knows what's driving me. I mean, I've written a whole book about what's driving me. So that's really important. Mm. Question for you. What is the Mm. trickiest thing about being freelance from a money point of view? The thing that came to mind doesn't feel like it's strictly money, but it is, right? So the thing that I think is hardest is not having someone to turn to, to say, is this a good idea, right? Like, is it a good idea for me to work with this company? Is it a good idea for me to post this thing? I'm thinking most specifically about my Instagram, actually. Mm. Okay, so for example, I've been posting quite vocal stuff recently about Israeli human rights abuses in Palestine, And that has felt really, really petrifying. I can ask friends and family what they think. I can ask Palestinian and Israeli people who I know who work in this area what they think. But it's not the same as someone who is part of your team where you're working for the same company. And that does feel like it relates to money. So I'm actually not critical of cancel culture. I think cancel culture is great. But I am really, really scared of getting cancelled, right? And I think that fear is kind of a good thing. But it can also sometimes hold you back from doing the right thing. So I know that I'm losing followers by posting about this, but I also feel like it's the right thing to do. And losing followers does equate to losing money and potentially like losing gigs, right? There are people who won't feel comfortable hiring me based on my opinions about what's happening now. I'm not going to sound kind of high and lofty and I don't know, maybe it's that I don't stick. Well, I know I feel like I do stick my neck out quite a bit, but I always feel like if people don't want to work with me as a result of this, then that's not someone I want to work with, especially as... I think I am and you are fine financially. So I think it'd be very different if you were struggling for money. But I'm like, that's actually a privileged position to be in, to be financially comfortable and to be like, yeah, you know what? I might lose out on X, Y, Z as a result. There's kind of two considerations there. It's like, am I right? And is this appropriate to post? And I feel like you're quite clear on where you stand on that specific issue for the most part. But then the kind of commercial and work Mm. conversation For me, I think if I feel like this is ethically sound, whatever I'm saying, then I have to deal with what comes Mm. as a result professionally. Yeah, I definitely, definitely. I I think I think that psychologically, but there's something in my heart that is still trying to catch up to that. So, for example, I'm working on a pitch at the moment for a TV show and it would be such a different creative space for me to be working in. And in sending that around, it's not that I think that, you know, everyone who I'm going to send it to is going to disagree with my opinion on this. It's just, do people want to work with someone who's super outspoken in a way that is like a little bit uncomfortable to them and might feel a bit too political? And to be honest, you're probably right in that that is going to put some people off. I'm probably being a bit naive in that sense. But I think, I don't know, I just, I spent so long, most of my 20s, like not saying what I really thought and keeping my opinions to myself and not calling out things that are wrong I think it just feels really refreshing like, I feel really refreshed by the fact that I'm especially as I don't work for anyone but myself I, I don't have like a corporate company who I have to be like views my own not the BBC's well, I mean mm. actually they can't say anything but like you know what I mean it just feels really refreshing to be able to say exactly what I think and I sometimes wonder I'm like who is going to step in I sometimes like does my publisher sometimes look at what I'm tweeting and being like I mean like, I don't think they'd ever dream <laughs> of saying anything but I'm like are people always like, you know, my when I had an agent, have they ever looked at that and been like, oh. But the position that I'm in, I don't owe anything to anyone. 
I have a you know a responsibility not to tank the success of my books. But yeah, I am contractually obliged not to do anything directly. But in terms of not being able to speak my mind and having to keep my opinions to myself, I don't owe anything to anyone, and I find that so liberating. And that's why I also don't think that I can ever really work for a company ever again. I mean, it's also exactly like you said, you've worked so hard for this privilege throughout your 20s, you have to use it, right? Like, otherwise, what was the point of all of that, of all right. of that to then sit by and stay silent? It's funny, I've written about a company I used to work at in my book, and I've had over the years people who work there DM me about them. And so I feel like, well, they can't say anything, but I can. Can I ask what the company is? It's called AMV. It's an ad agency. Mm. So I worked there before Vice and I had to put up a lot of shit. And as I said, I've had people get in touch with me out, just who've put two and two together that I used to work there. Mm. And be like, what was your experience like there? Because I'm having a really shitty time. And I'm like, well, they clearly haven't changed. That's nothing. I'm like, well, they clearly haven't changed. Just to clarify as well, like, I don't think this needs clarification, but someone reaching out to you privately in your DMs about a terrible experience they're having is in no way comparable to someone reaching out to you via your DMs to be like, do you know what I mean? Like a white person in New York Times being like, I totally agree with this, I just can't say. Oh, yeah. Like, because of different. the power dynamics of yeah. that. Yeah, totally it's completely, completely different. different. I just want to say that out loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Completely different. And I've, I've felt bad every time I've had one of these messages, like really bad. Because yeah. I'm like, it takes me back to what it was like. Mate, I was really fucking unhappy. It's horrible. And also, I've received messages from people who worked at 538 long after I left. I just feel like, oh my God, what if I would have like screamed from the rooftops, they might not have taken that job. And then they could have saved themselves so much suffering. I don't know. But then also, it's so funny, I'm like talking to someone at the moment who's looking for a new job, this really, really talented black writer. And as we're like swapping links to like, I'm like, oh, this place is hiring, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, Every single place is like when you Google it, it's just like, oh, that's going to be a depressing work experience. Oh, that's going to be a depressing work experience. It's just such a relief to be freelance because actually most, a lot of the places I'm working with behind closed doors, I'd say most of them, I would be deeply unhappy to be working there as a member of staff. (laughs) But to like jump in and out, that's fine. Totally, totally, totally. It's funny what you say. And I won't say which company it was because I don't know the legals of this, but I've had people reach out to me with job offers in hand from companies mm. I've worked at mm. and been like, can you level with me about what it was like? Yeah. And I'm like, look, this is what I went through. I can't say whether it be the same, but let me just be honest yeah. with you about yeah. what I went through. And I think that has a couple of times affected their decision. And I feel really, really good about that. Yeah, definitely. Like, again, people have also contacted me to say, like, what were your experiences here and should I work there? And I do not hold back at all either. Right. I'm just like... Like, how, how can you? Like, that yeah, would be... Yeah, no. So unethical. Yeah. It'd be immoral. And so why? Why would I? Why would I try to protect that corporation over this individual? It just... But I think why? it's more about protecting yourself. I think that's yeah. the thing that I... Because, yeah. I mean, I don't owe these companies shit, but mm. it's more I'm like... I think something that I'm really happy about is I think definitely, especially in the last 12 months, but generally people are kind of shaking off the idea that they need to not shit talk former employers. Yeah. So like when I left Vice, I didn't say anything about them. Mm. And it was only when the New York Times reported on them, I was like, yes, I too had a shitty time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There. My deciding to write openly about companies I've worked at in the past was definitely a conscious choice. It's not something that I did flippantly, but not speaking about this stuff allows it to continue yeah absolutely absolutely and that's why I do 
love cancel culture, right? Because I think the fear of being called out, right? You know, it's like, you know, whenever you hear a guy say something like, oh, but you can't do anything these days, you're just like, yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. And don't you forget it. Like, <laughs> I want people to feel a little bit fearful before they do something that is fucked up. Yeah, totally. And I think it probably very, very slowly, but I think and hope it is changing yeah. what companies I mean, it's so slow, and I'm actually writing something about this at the moment, an article. I'm not naive about the extent to which workplaces change. It doesn't happen overnight or even in a year, but I do hope that the fear of being publicly called out is making some people sit up a little straighter yeah. and act a little yeah. differently. I just want to finish up with a couple of final questions. Uh-huh. Quite a big one, actually. Is this where you thought you would be financially at this point in your life? Say 10 years ago. Where you are now, is this what you thought would be the case? Such a good question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. I think when I was younger, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have to work really, really, really fucking hard and get to a place of financial security. And I think I can do it. And I think I kind of did. I would say this is going to sound so arrogant, I think I believed that I could do it. I think I was actually just even more arrogant. I thought I would be here where I am at 34 by the time that I was 28. And actually, <laughs> it just <laughs> takes a lot longer than I thought it would. Or even 26. Like, it's really awful. I thought I'd get here fast and it's been slow. What about you? I think, yeah, I'm probably similar. I mean, 10 years ago, I just thought I'd be rich I don't know but yeah. I've talked about this again in my book sorry to say guys I do have a book out <laughs> we need to talk about money you can buy it you know all good bookstores but something I talk about because I went to this private school mm. and the careers they kind of advertised to us and push us towards careers days were all like really well-paid banking but it was yeah. basically like in yeah. investment banking or nothing so I thought that by the time I was 25 I'd be earning six figures obviously when I started working I had a brutal shock you know mm. a real like reality check I mean, on one hand, I never thought I'd own a home. So in that way, I am definitely outperforming mm. where I thought I'd be. I think I maybe thought I'd just be earning more money, but just because I've just always had slightly wild ideas about what's possible. And now I'm realising yeah. I have to work pretty hard even for the money I do have. But I'm very happy with what I do have. But I also do want more. The human condition. Yeah. No, I know. I'm happy with what I have for the age that I'm at. But I'm also yeah. I'm like where I want to be in five years time. Is different from where I am now. Where do you want to be in five years' time? Just richer. Just earning more money. Earning the kind of money that if I stopped working today, I think, I, I haven't really done the maths on this, but like six to 12 months I'd be broke, which I think is a pretty good yeah. position to be in, especially yeah. six to 12 months of like probably spending quite a lot. I, could, I don't know. But I want to be at a point in time where I could just like take a career sabbatical if I wanted to. I probably wouldn't because yeah. that's just not something I do. But I want to have like investments and... Just, you know, like have serious money in the bank. But see, Ortega, this is where the money dysmorphia comes in a little bit because you saying you could survive for six to 12 months, but you also said, I want to be in a position where I can take a career sabbatical, but you clearly are in a position where you can take a career sabbatical. But I'd come back to no money, whereas I'd like to be able to take a six to 12 month mm, sabbatical where I'd come back to still having money. I see. And it's not because I want to take a career sabbatical. Yeah. But then also career sabbatical, do I just mean maternity leave? <laughs> Is that what might end up being the case? I don't know. I don't know if I want to have kids. That's a whole, like, we don't have to oh my God. those questions. Oh, my God. I think I've started to really, really think about that. And it's made me, yeah, it's quite stressful. But also, whatever, it's all hypothetical because there's no lines in sight. But yeah. Ditto. What are your financial goals now? 
Honestly, my financial goal is to maintain where I'm at while doing less of the work I don't care about and more of the work that I do. At the moment, I'm not looking for more money, actually. So does that mean being paid more to do the work you like? I guess it means sorting out what's in my shopping basket of work and tossing out some of the crusty jobs and putting in some more of the of the jobs that mean something mm. to me. So, for example, like to be able to sell a TV concept of something mm. that I really, really believe in and have been writing about for four years. That's Ooh. the fucking dream. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Mona, it's been an absolute pleasure talking oh, to you Oh, you too. Today. It's Kaga. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about money and is available now in hardback, ebook and audio with signed copies available from waterstones.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Oteguagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. See you next week.